Not as good to have this opportunity to be with you again in the house of the Lord. What a great hope we have as we look forward to a glorious future with our Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy we have that we can walk with him daily even now. Through his abiding Holy Spirit, what a privilege we have to have the fellowship of the saints as we go through the challenges of, of this world, and there are many, and we are thankful that in God's good providence and good wisdom, he formed the church and uses the church for us to lean upon and to be strengthened in times of need. There's some things in the back that you can take if you are an active member. There is a copy of the proposed budget for next year. There is a copy of the ballots for the nominees for those that will serve on the boards. You can take one and, and look it over for this week. And just a, a, a note about the list of nominees. Maybe you don't know every name on the list, but be assured that this has been a process that has taken place over the past several months. Uh, a nomination committee that has met with candidates, that has prayed for God's wisdom. Those lists have been turned over to the elders who did a very similar vetting process. And so if there's any questions that you have, then please talk to one of the elders, talk to one of the members of the committee. We'll be glad to answer any questions about any of the people that we put forward. But we have confidence in their uh, character and trustworthiness to serve over the next year. And so we look forward to affirming them next year as we gather together. As we enter the, well, more than enter, we're in the middle of the Advent season now. I hope you'll continue to look for opportunities to get peop people aware of what we're happening in the church. There's a concert, a program on the 18th. Invite your family and friends. There's opportunities happening in connection groups. It's a great way to connect and let your neighbors know that the light of the world is shown down into our darkness. And therefore, we can be a people of great hope. In our fast-moving world, there seems to be a struggle in the human heart to become great and famous. There's a struggle for significance, for meaning, for purpose. It moves us to work and to strive and to seek each day. But what do we think about when we stop and think about the meaning of greatness? What would your definition of the word be? There's an anecdotal story that comes from the life of the famous boxer Muhammad Ali. Now, whether it is actually true or not, it certainly fits with his character and demeaning, demeaning because he certainly was never known as a man of humility. So as the story goes, Muhammad Ali was on a flight, flying across the country in one of his many engagements. And during the flight, the aircraft ran into some turbulence. And the pilot got on his microphone and, and said, we're experiencing moderate turbulence, which all experienced travelers know to be, you better start praying now. <laughs> and the, the, the follow-up order was, everyone please return to their seats and fasten their seatbelts. And everyone returned to their seats and fastened their seatbelts, except Muhammad Ali. One of the flight attendants went to him and said, well, I'm sorry, sir, but you need to put on your seatbelt and obey the captain's orders. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant replied, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> it strikes us a little bit as un unseemly when someone toots their own horn. I've heard the saying go that pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick but the one who has it. It's, a, it's good to be good at things, and it's good to want to be good at things, but it's not so good to praise ourselves for doing those things. As Proverbs 27, 2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. But what if it were that the stranger, quote unquote, that was praising you is none other than the Lord himself? That is what we see in our passage this morning. John, Jesus will praise the one who came before him. And after he praises John, he then puts that praise in proper perspective in light of the new covenant. Jesus will, after telling them who John is, will address the people of Israel that they should have paid attention to who John was and who he was. Well, I invite you to stand one more time in honor of God and his word as we read our passage for this morning, which is Matthew 11, verses 11 to 19. 
And the authoritative word of God says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let us pray. Father, as the author of these words, we turn to you now and ask your help to understand its meaning. Would you be our teacher this morning? Would you guide us and do the work that only you can do in the giving of understanding and the opening of eyes, the rejoicing of hearts, the laying aside of burdens? So, Father, as we turn to you, we ask that you would open our eyes to get a brighter glimpse of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose advent we celebrate during this season, and in whose name we now commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, today we get to part two of the story between Jesus and John the Baptist. In part one last week, we saw that Jesus summarized the calling and ministry of this great man, that John the Baptist, in fact, had been sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord, that he had some understanding from the beginning of who this Jesus would be and what he was to do, that the Son of God had come to take away the sins of the world. But we've seen that even John the Baptist, for all the privileges that he had, still had an incomplete understanding of who the Lord is. He had said in his first few words of ministry, at least that we have recorded, the axe is at the root of the tree. He thought that judgment against sin was imminent, and that the Messiah King was at the door ready to overthrow the Romans and their oppression. He was expecting a strong military leader, which was a little different than what Jesus came to be in his initial coming. So as John is going out preaching against sin and against wickedness, he warns his heroes to repent, turn away from their evil ways, and turn away from sin before it's too late. And for all of that faithfulness we saw last week, he was rewarded with a prison ministry. And all of that happened right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. As John is languishing in prison in a cave near the Dead Sea on the eastern side of the Jordan River, he begins to hear about the deeds of the Christ, as we saw last week. And he was experiencing doubts. Should not the one who is the Messiah, the Son of God, be able to release me, a prophet, from prison? And we saw Jesus' gracious response to look at the evidence, John. To look at what is happening. To remember the promises of the Bible. Today he would say something like, read your, read your Bible again, John. These are the things that have come just as they were promised about who I would be. Do not be ashamed. Jesus, of course, will make it clear that he was bringing in sin, bringing in righteousness to overcome sin, and he would take away sin. And the way he would deal with sin in his first coming is he would be the sacrifice for sinners and offer forgiveness to all who would repent and believe. But he will return one day to remove all sin, all wickedness, all unrighteousness from all of creation. But for now, we're in that now and not yet time of history. And that brings us then to our first major point this morning, which is John the prophets and greatness. John the prophets and greatness. At this time, I'd like to greet those who are joining us online. Good morning. It is nice to have you with us this morning as we study God's word together. We're mindful that you would desire to be here with us, but we're thankful for the opportunity that you can be with us wherever you might be. And you also will be in a spirit of prayer as we are as we study the Word of God together. John the Baptist, as we saw last week, was a good model of service to the Lord. 
He was committed, passionate, bold, principled. He preached the truth even when it cost him something. And in recent weeks, the news has not been in our favor concerning God's view of men, women, and marriage. And I would say the time is even at the door where it might cost us something to preach the truth. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to declare, thus says the Lord, in spite of what the Supreme Court or the Congress or even the leader of our country does, because we serve the King of Kings? But John, even though he was used of the Lord, as we saw in our introduction, did not have a full understanding of who Jesus was. He did not yet have a perfect understanding of the ways of the Savior. And so at a critical time when he was experiencing doubt and disappointment, he sent some of his own disciples to Jesus to ask a question. And we saw that Jesus was gracious with them and how he dealt with that question. And I think that's an encouragement for us today as we were reminded last week that doubts, disappointments will happen to all of us. And it is what we do with them that is critical. As one commentator says, John did not need to be perfect to fulfill the work of God assigned to him, and neither do we. What a great promise we have that ultimately it is God who is working in and through us to accomplish his purposes. And so friends, whatever the Lord has called you to do, do it. Let him find you busy in what he has called you to do. Let him find you trustworthy, for he is more than able to take care of his own. So we see John, the prophets, and greatness, and we get to our first sub-point, which is greater but not greatest. Greater but not greatest. The text says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now a few verses earlier, Jesus had already affirmed that John was a prophet, and more than a prophet. Now he's saying he was the greatest of prophets. Listen to that statement again. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Think of the significance of that statement. What it might mean in the history of redemption. Greater than Abraham, who was the patriarch of the faith. Who is the father of all who believe today, Jew and Gentile. Greater than Moses, who was considered the greatest prophet in the history of Israel. Of course, before Jesus. Not Elijah, who performed great works and great miracles that marked a turning point in the history of Israel. Not David, Israel's greatest king until Jesus. Nor other heroes of the faith like Isaac or Jeremiah or Gideon or Sarah or Deborah or Mary or Elizabeth. John is greater than them all, Jesus says. So that brings up the obvious question. How is John greater? In what way is he greater? Is it because of his personal righteousness? Undoubtedly, he's a righteous man. He's called that in the word, but that's not the reason. Was it because he was a prophet? Yes, he is a prophet. And Jesus even said more than a prophet, but there were other prophets. Was it because of his character? Well, there were other major figures in the history of redemption as God was working his plan. Great men and women that were examples of character and commitment. So how was John greater? Because he had the privilege and the position that was greater than anyone else in history. He's the one that got to announce the arrival of the Messiah. He was the forerunner of the Lord. The one about whom we saw last week prophets even prophesied, saying that one would arise who would be the forerunner of the Lord. And Jesus says, in John, those prophecies have been fulfilled. He was great because of the time he came into the world. He was great because of the greatness of the one that he came to announce. But still, that's quite a statement that Jesus makes about John who's languishing in a Roman prison in a cave. And as word gets back to him what Jesus had said, this must have been a source of encouragement to him. John would be reminded that he had a great role to play, and he played it well. Of course, not perfectly, but he served a perfect God. We can do the same today. We all have roles to play. We won't kid ourselves into thinking that we'll play them perfectly, but we can all serve a perfect God as we do and lean into his grace and his righteousness and his holiness. He did have some faults and weaknesses like we all do, but John exhibited humility 
an awareness of his place in history. He's the one that in John 3.30 said, I must decrease, but he must increase. Dr. J.I. Packard in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, says that the focus of health in the soul is humility, while the root of inward corruption is pride. In the spiritual life, nothing stands still or stays static. If we are not constantly growing downward into humility, we shall be steadily swelling up into pride. John the Baptist displayed this. He went downward, said, he must increase, I must decrease. He is greater than me. He is the one I came to announce. I must fulfill my role. So John the Baptist was greater than any who have arisen born, those, of those born among women because he fulfilled his role. And then it goes on and says, yet, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Look at the impact of that qualifying conjunction. Now, for the grammar nerds here in Greek, this is the contrastive adversative participle. That's a simple way of saying two ideas are set against each other. Jesus is showing a very significant contrast that is underway. As great as John the Baptist is, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Reminds us that John belonged to the old order, to the old covenant, to the old ways of doing things that preceded the kingdom of heaven. He was among those who prophesied its arrival, but was not a recipient of all of its blessings. But the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, the one who has been born again of the Spirit of God, the one who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ that we just celebrated as we've gathered around this table, has a greater privilege than John the Baptist. Because we're the recipients of that greater righteousness that Jesus brought in that was greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. So my friends, if you're in Christ today, you're in a privileged position. That what the prophets announced, which God promised, has now been fulfilled in Christ. At the moment that you believed, at the moment that your eyes were open to see, that your heart was warm to believe, you entered into the body of Christ, you entered into the kingdom of heaven in a greater position than that of John the Baptist. You see, he died a martyr's death before the new covenant was instituted in the upper room. He died before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He was the end of the old ways of the old covenant. He was great among those born of women, but those in the kingdom of heaven are born of the Spirit into a new covenant, and they're greater than he. Friends, during the Christmas season, but all year round, do not lose focus of the gracious privilege that you have to be in Christ. You may look at yourself and say, well, I'm not great in the eyes of the world. You may think you're small in the eyes of the world. You may say, I don't have a, a great spiritual position or of leadership. I'm just serving in a quiet ministry in an obscure manner somewhere. You are greater than John the Baptist because of your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. You live on this side of the inauguration of the new covenant with the blessing of being able to know God personally, to know that your sins have been forgiven, to know that your guilty conscience has been cleansed. And now you have the awesome privilege of declaring that new kingdom to all those around you and be part of God's great plan to announce that Jesus is King and Lord to all the four corners of the earth. But even with the coming of that great kingdom, that kingdom of light has entered into the darkness of this world and has now entered into conflict with the kingdoms of darkness, and so we realize the battle is real. Our text says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. Now, this statement is an enigma. It has caused many commentators to have many different opinions about what it might mean throughout the history of the church. And so it does require some careful reflection. 
but we begin with it with the phrase from the days of John the Baptist until now. It shows that something is located in the past, that it reached up to a point and then it was fulfilled. There's a change, there's a new direction, there's a new purpose. But how should we understand the rest of this phrase? Does this refer to violent men who seek to use the gospel for their own purposes to advance their own agendas? Does it mean that the gospel faces opposition by those who oppose it? Certainly that was John's experience, that he had experienced great opposition. It's what Jesus promised, that his believers, his disciples would experience great opposition. Does this mean that it is the zealousness of believers who will go out and conquer the kingdoms of darkness as the gospel advances, as the kingdom of light is, is presented? After all, we are told to go out and be bold, to be firm, to be steadfast, to not be ashamed of Christ. I think a larger picture of Matthew and the ministry of Jesus shows that the gospel will always face opposition. It always has in the history of the church. And the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the light of the gospel has stirred up opposition in the spiritual realm. Those that are in darkness, they don't like the light. They fight against the light. And Jesus has brought all of his power and spiritual forces against the forces of evil. And they will resist him, but he will defeat them because he is stronger. So the reality is that there is a spiritual struggle that goes on in the Christian life. As we strive for righteousness, as we strive for holiness, as we strive to put to death, Paul says, the deeds of the flesh. And as we're clothed in righteousness and obey the word of God, putting on, as it were, his righteousness and the fruit of the spirit that comes with it. There is a spiritual struggle, but my friends, there is a victor and his name is Jesus. And so all who have been touched by the spirit of God, who have entered into the kingdom of heaven, are involved in gospel ministry. And the forces of evil and the forces of evil men will organize against us to do what they can to stop the progress of the gospel, to stop us from living for righteousness, to try to silence us or intimidate us or bully us. But here's the good news. They will fail. They will violently attack the kingdom. But that same kingdom will powerfully advance because of the power of the Lord and none will be able to resist it. The light overcomes the darkness. So again, we see Jesus promising that there will be hostility, there will be opposition, there might even be violence. And that is true even today as brothers and sisters around the world who name Jesus are suffering in prisons even as we gather here this morning for their faith in Jesus Christ. But they, they praise the Lord that they are counted worthy to suffer for the, ta- the sake of the gospel. And so we need to continually work with the Spirit of God in his power, directed by his truth, with effort and vigilance and humility to guard and keep the unity of the church and the unity of believers because the battle is real and the world will seek to pick us off if it can. And so after this challenge that the battle is real, Jesus continues by saying that John was the last one in a long line. The last one in a long line. For all of the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And this is a great statement then from our Lord. He has already said that all of the law and the prophets point to him. We saw that in Matthew 5, where he came to be the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And now this includes John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last one in a long list of prophets sent by the Lord to announce that the Lord was coming. John had the privilege to say that the Messiah had arrived. And so if you want to know what the answer to the trivia question is, who is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? It's John the Baptist. Because he had the privilege of announcing the coming of the Lord. And you may say, but pastor... 
I find about John the Baptist in my New Testament. Yes, as it's recorded for us, it is in what we call the New Testament. But in the fulfillment of time, the new covenant had not yet been implemented. And he was the last one that came to announce the new covenant has come. And as Jesus then is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he's brought in the new revelation that interprets and understands and fulfills all that came before. So John helps us to understand what the prophets came to do. He fulfilled his role, and now the Lord has come. Which brings us to our next point, which is Elijah has come. And then we get to another one of those tricky statements in the, the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. If you're willing to accept it. Jesus understands that it takes time. It takes understanding to overcome the old way of thinking. With his coming as the Messiah, something radical has come. Something new has come. Now, John had already brought in changes. After all, he had announced to the people of Israel, tell, telling them to be baptized for a baptism of repentance because they were not yet ready to receive the coming of the Lord. And in their minds, they didn't need to be baptized. It was those dirty Gentiles that needed to be baptized. That would already change their paradigm, change their way of thinking. It would challenge certainly the conventional way they thought of things. And now Jesus is saying they need to change their understanding of the role of Elijah before this first appearance of the Lord. And he knows, Jesus does, that change is hard. And it takes some time to adjust. And even among his own disciples, they didn't have full understanding and had to be adjusted along the way of their understanding of who Jesus was and what he had come to do and the timing in which he came to do it. They were used to the old ways, the old ideas of the kingdom. They wanted to be the ones who would be in charge in this new kingdom that was coming in. And so Jesus has to give that expression then to help them understand what is happening. But he says, Elijah has come. And just a few verses earlier, he had quoted from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, which said that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And at the end of Malachi, there was another prediction that Elijah would come before the arrival of the Messiah. And Jesus will help us to understand how does this all fit together. That it came together in John, who clearly said, I'm not Elijah, but who came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. We have the commentary from the angel in Luke chapter 1. The angel appeared to Zechariah, who was the priest, who was performing his priestly duties. And the angel appears to John who with his wife Elizabeth was unable to have a son. But look at what the angel promised about this John, this John the Baptist. And the angel said, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel quotes from those same verses at the end of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that there would be a people prepared for the coming of the Lord, and John would come in that spirit and power of Elijah. We get a further explanation in Matthew 17. We'll look at that in several weeks or months when we finally get to that chapter, but the Mount of Transfiguration, of how to understand how this all fits together to change and overcome the traditional way of thinking that they had, the conventional way of how they understood in the first century. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. They represent the law and the prophets. And they both point to Jesus. John says, I'm not Elijah, who went to heaven directly without dying, but he recognized that he had come in the power and spirit of Elijah. And so Jesus says, Elijah has come. And now that Elijah has come, the Lord must be here. Because Elijah was to come to announce the arrival of the Lord. And so Jesus actually uses his teaching to affirm his deity, his divine origin. That he has come to accomplish what he would accomplish in his first coming. At a 
his first coming, he comes to bring salvation to those who believe. But at his second coming, he will come in judgment to deal with all of wickedness not yet dealt with. And so there's, in the minds of these first readers, and perhaps in your mind this morning even, there's a need to grow in understanding. So that's why Jesus has to follow this up then with a, with a plea for the Spirit of God to be at work. For he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is always the case when the Word of God is taught that it requires the work of God, the Holy Spirit, for us to understand what it is that God has said. He's the one that must give understanding. He's the ultimate teacher. But if Jesus has said that Elijah has come, we need to take him at his word and let him give the explanation. We who are part of the new covenant, we who have the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, can hear these things because we have the word of God in front of us. But we too, each time we come to this word, need to pray this prayer. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God, open my eyes that I might see the wondrous things of your law. Psalm 119 and verse 18. That we would pray that we would understand what it is that God is trying to show us. As we come to the end of our first major point, we get to the second which is a stubborn generation, a stubborn generation. Jesus has addressed the nature of John the Baptist, who he is, what he came to do, that he fulfilled a role, and now having defended and praising him, he now needs to respond to charges that have come against him from the people of Israel. And he does so in a creative way. He's actually going to compare two prophets, John the Baptist and himself, because after all, Jesus was a prophet. The fulfillment of all the prophets, but he was a prophet. And Jesus will challenge the people and say, you have hardened your heart. And I need to consider who John really was and what he came to do, who Jesus really is and what he came to do. But we see that they won't play along. They won't play along. So he says, but what shall I compare to what shall I compare this generation now, this expression, this generation, is one of those key phrases that help us to understand a number of things that will unfold later in the gospel according to Matthew. It's used eight times. And one of the problems and challenges we have in interpreting Matthew from beginning to end is using a consistent standard all the way through. And we'll see some of those challenges as they come up as we go through. But here, this generation refers to those leaders in the time of Jesus who, did, who rejected him as Messiah and who did not respond to the ways of the Lord. They wanted to hang on to power. This generation, in quotes, had misunderstood and rejected the one who had been sent from heaven, and they will suffer the punishment and judgment of their rejection. And we'll see what happens to this generation as we move through the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus asked the question, to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children playing in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. The marketplace was an important place in first century Jewish life. It was the center of commercial and community life. Much of the important social and economic and societal matters were decided there. And so as the parents would mill around, making deals, interacting with one another, debating important social matters, the children would play in the squares, as children are prone to do. They gathered together and they play their games. And popular games at that time were called wedding and funeral. If the children were playing wedding, they would sing. Play the flute, play instruments, dance, have a time of celebration. If they played funeral, they would sing sad songs and put on sad faces and pretend to be wailers. For you understand that in that time, every family hired professional wailers to come to every funeral. But as is often the case with children, they don't always get along. There's usually one group that doesn't want to do what the other group wants to do. You can imagine today, and I get to see this, I have the joy of seeing these beautiful children that come here every week during the week, and maybe this group wants to play tag, and this group wants to play hide and seek, and you can imagine if they're 
conflicting with one another. I don't want to play your game. I don't want to play your game. And then maybe there's also a group on the outside that says, we don't want to do what any of you are doing. And that's really what Jesus is turning his direction to here. As one commentator looks at what Jesus is saying about this generation, this group of leaders that had rejected him, he said, quote, they played the behavior of spoiled brats who will not play either a wedding game or a funeral game. They won't accept anything that does not come from them because their way alone was the right one. So in this illustration, Jesus is challenging a distinction, making a distinction between childlike play and childish play. There's a huge difference between the two. The current generation of religious and political leaders in Jesus' day wanted things done their own way. And Jesus is going to show that by using the illustration of John and Jesus. He played the flute for you, and you did not dance. It was a time of celebration, but you did not enter in. And before that, we played a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. It was a time of fasting and repenting, and you did not participate. They would not mourn with John, and they would not rejoice with Jesus. John gave a warning about sin. Jesus gave the offer of forgiveness. Both were met with opposition, so we see the tale of two prophets. He draws attention to the fact that the Jewish leaders of that day would not go along with what God was doing through these two prophets. So he says, for, not, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. We know that John was sent by God. We know that John had a very rigid asceticism, a very strict diet that he followed of what he would eat and drink. He practiced self-denial. Food was not an obsession in his life. He just sought only the necessities. And he lived in the wilderness. And he dressed in a funny manner. And those who separated themselves from society and who dressed in unconventional ways, at least in those days, were seen to be under some type of strange spiritual influence. And that often was the case. We read cases where demon-possessed people live in tombs and live in caves and live far away from the people. Perhaps they associated John with that. He's living in this rigid, frugal way, separated from the people by how he eats and drinks, by how he dresses. So they wrongly say that he has a demon. And then Jesus goes on and talks about himself. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus calls himself the son of man. That was the favorite title he used for himself. The son of man, who is God in the flesh, came and he did eat and drink. And he did participate in the normal habits of society. We might even say that Jesus enjoyed a good party and would invite others to gather with him. He enjoyed a good meal. He enjoyed being with family and friends. He enjoyed participating with what they ate and participating with what they drank. And what was their reaction? Well, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't ascetic like John, so he must be a glutton and a drunkard. As if somehow the, the mere enjoyment of a good meal or a glass of wine is sin. Not if Jesus does it. Now to be clear, gluttony and drunkenness are always sins. But God gives all things for our enjoyment. And Jesus was never a drunk a day in his life. Jesus was never out of control a day in his life. He was clearly under the spirit of God at all times. But they slandered him. They wouldn't go along, neither with what John was doing, neither with what Jesus was doing, neither with the self-denial that John practiced, neither with the freedom in the spirit that Jesus was practicing. They were just cranks who would not go along with what the Lord was bringing in with the new covenant. And so Jesus concludes this section by saying wisdom displays itself. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus knows that sometimes you can't please everyone. And sometimes there's certain people you just can't please at all. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees could always find something wrong with what Jesus was doing. They would always judge this supposed man of God who didn't follow their ways of doing things. They were constantly looking for a way to accuse him. 
And so he would have to remind them of what righteousness was, what were the rules of God, how he was to conduct himself, and that he was fulfilling prophecy. But they didn't want to change from the old way to get ready for the new. They wouldn't enter the kingdom of heaven. They didn't listen to the invitation or the command to repent and believe. And what's worse is they tried to keep others from entering that kingdom as well. And so Jesus, as he gives this challenge, he says, well, look at the outcome of their lives. Godly wisdom produces fruit in keeping with the wisdom and righteousness of God. And we've already seen that Jesus has promised his followers that they would be treated in the same way by the enemies of the gospel. Often accused of wrongdoing, even though their supposed wrongs often are not sin, according to the ways of God, but are just simply a ways of the culture or the, the current way of thinking. We're going to find ourselves more and more on the outside looking in, my friends. We're accused of being on the wrong side of history. But here's what we stand on. We will be on the right side of eternity. And that's why we stand firm. This generation was wrong about Jesus. And they were punished. Since we know that God knows how to deal with the wicked, God knows how to save and protect the righteous. Let's stand firm. Because it is the end of one's life that gives true meaning and interpretation to the meaning of one's life. Because oftentimes we only understand a life that has been lived by how that life ends, which gives meaning and purpose and perspective. John had his doubts died a martyr's death in faithfulness to the Lord. Of course, Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He came to die. But by his earthly human life, he shows what living for God looks like. And his life shows the wisdom and majesty of God. We do well to consider the outcome of our lives. If it's true that wisdom is justified by her deeds, another gospel account says wisdom is known by her children, then it is the fruit of one's life that will reveal the true root of one's life. And so let us be those who walk according to the ways of the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven with a greater righteousness and wisdom than the world can offer. And as we do that then, we will walk in ways that are pleasing to the Lord and avoid the traps that the, the world will lay for us Avoid the foolishness that into which we can fall and we'll have fruit that will endure to show that our lives mattered, that our lives impacted, that our lives were lived for the glory of God. And so as we consider what Jesus is saying here, that we not ignore what he is doing, that we pay attention to how God is fulfilling all of his purposes, then let us end with that same challenge and prayer that Jesus does he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And next week we'll continue in our study in Matthew chapter 11 and look at the importance of believing in Jesus. Even a warning going out against entire cities who rejected the gospel and what will happen to them. But until that time, what are some lessons we can take away from our time in the word today? Because of the privilege of living in the new covenant age, friends, we are privileged beyond understanding. We will humbly rejoice each day for the privilege we have to be believers in Jesus. Each day, humbly rejoice that you have a Bible in your hands that gives you the full revelation of God. Each day, humbly rejoice that you have the indwelling spirit within you that guides you in righteousness and wisdom. Each day, humbly rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life and that the one who has called you will preserve you and hold you in his hand till the end. Secondly, knowing that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, we will rejoice in the freedom we have to live for the Lord. We can live according to the moral guidelines given to us in the scriptures and freely enjoy the Lord even as we make choices to live godly and holy lives and say no where the Spirit says no and say yes where the Spirit says yes. And as the Lord continues to lead and grow us in new ways, he knows what it takes for us to grow, what we need to go through so that we will grow. So we will respond to the Spirit's leading with joy and obedience. 
he knows us. He knows what he wants us to become, like Jesus. He knows the path that he needs to bring us through. So joyfully respond to his leading. Fourthly, we will do what is right so that sinners hear the gospel even if others do not understand or misinterpret what we are doing. They call John the Baptist a demon. They call Jesus the chief of demons. But they continued to do what was right in righteousness and perseverance. And so will we because we care more that sinners hear about Christ than that sinners might condemn us for what we do. We have the approval of God, so we need not fear the condemnation of men. And lastly, because there is fruit from every type of root, we will seek to be rooted in the wisdom and truth of God. What is rooted in God, in his wisdom, in his truth, is that which will endure. And may it be that God moves in each of our lives, all throughout our lives, that there is abundant fruit that is offered at his feet when we meet him face to face. Even so, may it be, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, as we turn to you this morning, we are amazed that right down to the details, you keep your word, that you teach us your word, that you help us to understand your word, that you cause our minds to be stretched, because how can a finite mind grasp an infinite one? But thank you that you love us so much that you will continually to stretch us so that we might know you more, that we might grow more in you, that we might be pleasing in your sight. Father, as we consider John, we thank you that we have the privilege of being even greater than John the Baptist because of who we are in Christ. Oh, Father, what an amazing truth. Thank you for it. Guide us this week for your glory, for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, would you stand as we close out our service and sing, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.
great to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord, and we have a great week of service ahead, proclaiming him in a community that needs to hear about the light and joy. I hope you take a chance to check out the light of parade of parade of lights next uh, Saturday, because for the first time in quite a long time, OCS is going to have a float. So, so come out and support OCS and the Evangelical Free Church as we let the light of Jesus shine, literally and hopefully figuratively, as we represent the Lord at the Parade of Lights next Saturday. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us go in peace. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.